When you don't belong in the world, nowhere is safe. Herka has always been an outsider. When she's summoned to Menfala for the right, she risks everyone discovering what she really is. But what choice does she have? Welcome to the first five chapters. I am Luke Kerr, a writer and a podcaster who's forging these two passions into this novel, Book Review Podcast. Join me as I adventure into the realms and imaginations of today's authors. You never know who we'll meet or what we'll learn along the way. And when we're done, it's up to you whether or not to read beyond the first five chapters. Joining me today on the first five chapters podcast is my longtime friend and co-author of the book that we finished and are currently querying for, Craig Peters. Welcome, Craig. Hi, Luke. I thought that this book, Odin's Child by Siri Pedersen, would be a very interesting one for us to discuss, in part because the story that we wrote is one that has some foundation pieces, so shall we say, in Norse mythology, and or Nordic. I shouldn't necessarily say Norse, but Nordic mythology. Norwegian, specifically. Norwegian, Scandinavian. Scandinavia <laughs> might be a better way to phrase it. And so when I saw this book, I was like, oh, this will be a fun one to discuss with you. Uh, but before we dive into Odin's Child, I want to ask you a little bit about you, what you enjoy. What are your favorite genres? What who who are a couple of your favorite authors? Is there someone that really excites you when you go to Barnes and Noble to find a book? Well, when I began reading science fiction or fantasy, it would have been Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov, very hard science fiction authors. But as I got older and life got more serious, I started going the other direction to fantasy and fun stuff. But today, my favorite authors would be Robert Jordan and Terry Goodkind. Though Robert Jordan is no longer with us, his books are still pretty awesome. So I do like those two. And Terry Goodkind has enough humor, danger, and adventure in it that I just I just love his stuff. Now, I think I know the answer to this just because I've known you for so many years now. But do you read on a Kindle or do you read the physical book? <laughs> I I much prefer reading reading books, actual real substantial books and i keep one in just just about every room of the house okay. so <laughs> so I, I'm, I may be reading three or four books at the same time this this is not sharing any secret that um any of your friends do not know but craig <laughs> is notorious for um going to dinner and sitting there and just reading on his hour lunch the entire lunch and you will not get him. That is sacred time. Let's put it that way. You do not mess with Craig and his lunch while reading a book. You just don't mess with Craig. I, I'm excited to discuss this with you uh, because when I saw the cover, it was really intriguing to me. Odin's Child is by Siri Pedersen. It was translated by Paul Russell Garrett. She is best known for a comic book series, and I'm not sure how this is pronounced, so I apologize. It's Anticlimax, which is spelt K-L-I-M-A-K-S, um, and the Raven Rings trilogy. When I was looking for books to be discussing on this podcast, first of all, I looked at the cover, Odin's Child, well, a good Norse mythology is something that I'm always up for, first of all. Second of all, the cover has 
what appears to be a chopped off tail on the end of it. For this podcast, I'm trying to do most of the reviews as books that are have been published within the last year. So when I opened up the cover and I saw that it said 2021, I was like, oh, cool. I'm getting in uh, maybe the first book in this series. Uh, but then I, apparently I wasn't paying too close of attention because it turns out that this book is the first of a trilogy that was originally written in 2013 and was just and I'm guessing it was just translated over here. Um, I would have to do some more research on it, but I was surprised to find that the all three books have been published. And so it's almost like we're doing a review for a Netflix series where you can binge the entire series for all the seasons because you started it late. <laughs> but you thought it was new. And so I'm like, okay, this is going to be a little bit fun. The first thing that I normally ask everybody, in addition to what they enjoy reading and whether or not they prefer the hardcover or the Kindle app, is in general, not necessarily specifically for this book, do you enjoy reading prologues or do you skip them? If they're not too long or tr trotting or plodding, I love reading the prologue, kind of to get an idea as to where it stands and where I'm starting the story. For me, reading the prologue is something where I normally skip them. And then I'll go back afterwards to see how it fit into the big picture after I've read it, because there is nothing that will frustrate me more than a prologue that has nothing to do with what's going on in the first several chapters and I don't find it doesn't connect until the near near the end. It drives me insane. And so there is a prologue to this book, but we're going to <laughs> save the discussion on that until we get to the end of the chapters. So um, this opens up, chapter one opens up with the heading Rhyme Returns. And I'm assuming it's pronounced rhyme. It's R-I-M-E. The book opens with the half-rotten spruce lay across the Aldup like a bridge. Its bark had cracked into great sheets, its trunk growing increasingly bare as the years progressed. It was about 20 paces over to the other side, a shortcut for a brave squirrel, no place for people. I found that to be a very descriptive and yet nerve-inducing opening paragraph because I'm like, what is going on with this tree? And why is she on? Or why is whomever that is on it on it? Because obviously it's not a squirrel. What did you think of this opening paragraph as a hook? I, honest to goodness, if you were to ask me about the prologue in the first page, as opposed to that half rotten spruce, I didn't like that at all. I thought, I thought I didn't really want to go further. It was like, okay, what do, what does it matter that there's a rotten spruce uh, bridging a gap or squirrels? I didn't, I didn't see any point to it. I still don't see any point to it. it, it but it was one of those things where. For me, I was a little bit confused by it. I was like, okay, we're setting this. This is in a forest. Apparently, there is a ravine. It's yes. being described as so. But the second paragraph, we have one of the three main characters from the cover flap description, Herka. It says, she steeled herself and took another step out. The trunk groaned beneath her. And so we're we're building on 
the fact that this was no place for a person, and yet she is on the trunk, a person, and she's attempting to rescue Velti, who is whimpering like a dog. But I was trying to figure out, is this some sort of pet? Is this a human? At first, I was a little bit confused, but I was also intrigued. What did you think of the introduction of one of our three main lead characters, Herka, and then the character of Velti that she was attempting to rescue? Well, since he was whimpering like a dog, I assumed he must be human. But at first, I, I wondered if maybe he was some other kind of pet. And I think it's Vettel or Vetley. And I found the names quite confusing, Velt. including that one. Well, but and that's the thing. I'm assuming that because this was translated, that they probably kept the original ones. Oh, and, yeah. And so I'm like, OK, this is very interesting. Um <laughs> But, but we find that as she's trying to rescue him, she's being taunted by some other kids across, um, and they're saying, and they're taunting her by saying, feeling a bit wobbly tailless. Now, yes. for, for me, this was the first indication of, okay, so apparently having a tail is a norm, and it immediately spawned the question, where in the world am I? Now, if you look on the inside cover of this book, there's a wonderful map, and we learn that this is the 12 kingdoms of and it's pronounced or it's spelled ym so i'm going to just say yim because i don't know how it's pronounced <laughs> um so the 12 kingdoms of yim i'm like okay so apparently it's normal to have tails in yim what did you think of this little teaser hook about her being different by not having a tail well since i read the prologue i can't get away from it since I read the prologue, I knew exactly what they were talking about. And so I assumed that she, she being feeling like she's less than everyone else, she has to be braver than everyone else. And she has to take risks that no one else would take. So having her out on that branch made some kind of sense. And saving her friend, uh, Yettle, seemed, seemed right, but on the same <laughs> At this point, I don't understand why Yettle is out there if this is such a dangerous branch. And, so it's and confusing. One, and once again, I do not speak Norwegian. I do not know how this name is pronounced. V-E-T-L-E. <laughs> I'm not sure how it's pronounced. So I apologize in advance to anybody who, like, this is going to be one of those ones where uh, our discussions and our pronunciations might be a little bit off. The tree cracks. She's trying to rescue the, this child. We find out that he is a child who, even though his he's 15 summers old, his brain is childish. So that would Im imply that there was some sort of mental handicap uh, with this child. And he was has a toy that he was chasing after. He sees her. And when he does, a smile spreads across his face and he runs toward her, but that puts more weight on the tree. The tree starts creaking. She's starting to feel thing, everything fall from beneath her. And all of a sudden she hears a voice. One point to me, if I can pull you, if I pull you up and she hears the voice of rhyme who she hasn't seen in three years. Rhyme is one of the other three main characters that is on the cover flap of this book. And I thought that it was an interesting introduction for, as you pointed out, a character of the character of Herka, who is so like brave on her own to then have another character who's coming in and in I, rescuing her in a way, I guess, literally rescuing her from the tree falling into the ravine. 
Um, but I thought that the way he was described, the fact that um, the te- the tension that they built, she thought he thought he'd won the spoiled rat. Here she was risking her life to save Vet- uh, Vetley only for him to come swaggering in to win points in a desperate situation. It was inconceivably childish. What a nerve. But he remembered dot, dot, dot. And then she responds to him when he asks if he can get the point. I'd be fine if you hadn't distract, uh, distracted me. You you can have half a point. And he's like, <laughs> nope. And this is me paraphrasing. He was like, you change all the rules. It's one point or nothing. So we have this tension between Rhyme and Herka that has been established on by like, what, page two, page yes. three? I mean, it's or like very early on in the book and i am a sucker for great tension between two characters what did you think about how she established this again i think it's the competitive nate her her competitive nature feeling like less than and we find out that rhyme or right now we know rhyme is really a, a heroic character he's going to be the the hero and he's going to save her and she's not going to let him get full credit for it because she could have done it on her own if if he hadn't interrupted. So, but could uh, she have because the impression that I got from the chapter was that she was pre- the tree was pretty much giving away and there was not enough time for her to get to safety. She probably couldn't have, but she was saying that she could have. Ah. So that's the point that she was going to be competitive regardless. That's why he doesn't get the full point. Then we come to the fact that she she's pulled back up on to the cliff. Vetley is there. He and his tail is hanging limply. Once again, because I'm confused, like as a reader, I'm confused by what's going on with, is it natural to have tails? Um, I'm like, so is this a dog? Is this some sort of pet? Because in my mind, I'm still thinking about the concept uh, I didn't read the prologue. So just diving into the book, I'm still thinking about the concept of, these people all being humans or like we have here on earth, no tails. (laughs) And I'm like, what the world is going on? And so for me, it was, I was still confused early on in the chapter because apparently it was common to have tails, but I hadn't quite grasped that yet. Now, because you read the prologue, did you have any of that confusion with this when it was described? Well, I wondered if, I mean, he could have still been an animal, a monkey or some such at this point in time. I assumed by that point that he was a, he was probably a, this is what I assumed. He was probably a small child with a tail. I did not know he was as old as he was or as old as she is. So at that point, uh, you know, I still thought it was a, uh, I thought it was a child because I had, did read the uh, prologue, but he still could be an animal. So I wasn't, 100% positive. But again, I thought it was a small child that she was trying to rescue, not a child her age. So, so I was did, a little confused by that. I guess the, the maybe this is a question. As a writer and uh, analyzing what an author has done, was it something that intrigued you to read more because you wanted clarity on, the, on your confusion? Because sometimes confusion is a good way to keep readers turning pages. No, actually, I was more interested in what at this point, I was more interested in Rhyme's name. Was it was it something Norwegian or Scandinavian? Was it 
was it kind of an odd name or did it mean something like, I mean, it actually has a meaning in English. So I, that's what I was focusing on. I wasn't focusing on the tension at, the, at this point. Well, one thing that Herka was t- focusing on was how Rhyme had changed. Yes. Because when he turned to look at her, she noticed the embroidery on the left-hand side of his chest, the raven. Its famous wings spread wide. The mark of the council, the mark of the seer. Panic gripped her, cutting deep like claws. The seer, the right. Her blood turned cold as she realized why he'd returned. And just before that, she had described him as not what he was currently, but how he changed from the past. Like she observed that he had a narrower face and this time he was armed. And then we go into the crest that she finds on him and panic ensues. All of a sudden, we have two characters who have friendship tension. But now I, now we have plot tension. And class tension. True. I got the sense that he was in a different class than she was. Definitely. Definitely. She has a moment of clarity when she's thinking, time has caught up with her. It was her year for the right. And every, apparently every, at a certain age, the right takes place. I will admit that as I'm reading through these chapters, I was a little bit confused by some of the differences in the rights and things, but I was on board for learning more and trying to understand. This chapter ends with her turning and walking away. She felt as if she was walking away from something important, but she didn't look back. How many times in your life or in our lives has each of us turned our back on something that we knew was important and didn't look back? Mm. That really resonated for me. How How is that as a cliffhanger for chapter one for you? You know, I, I thought about that as I was reading through it, and I was just wondering what was she moving toward that would be revealed in the next chapter. So it was a good cliffhanger. I wanted to see what comes next after the first chapter. What comes next? What is she walking toward? I think I know what she was walk from what she was walking away, but what what's going to happen next? So I felt that was a pretty good cliffhanger. I I thought that this was a well-crafted first chapter. The tension between um, the two characters were was really well done. The the tension or the fear or the insecurity of whatever the right is, she's scared of it. And she's apparently sacrificed some stuff to try and prevent going through it, but we don't know what that is yet. There's also these questions about her being tailless. And, and initially, as I'm reading this, I was like, is she ta- was her being tailless part of the sacrifice to prevent her from going through the right. And at this point, when I was reading it, I was still a little bit confused of do the humanoids in this world all have tails or is this still an anomaly? But the second chapter picks up with her running action and she didn't really slow until she was sure that Rhyme couldn't see her. So there was definitely, for her, the internal acknowledgement of her being watched by him. And she wasn't going, like, I interpreted this as she wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of looking back, which is how the first chapter had ended. 
How did you think this started off as a chapter? I think it picked up okay, well from where it was, and I'm starting to understand a little bit better about what's actually happening. Again, I knew I knew about the tail thing, and I knew about much of that because I had read read the prologue. But I want I start getting these things about the being blind, the binding, the right, and those types of things at this point. So I'm starting to get a little confused over where we're where we're headed, you know. So I was confused, but I thought the opening of the next chapter was was actually pretty decent. Herka slows, but then she nears the hovel, which is the home where her and her father have been has been living. We find a little bit of backstory on it because she feels uneasy but is not afraid of the house. Apparently the villagers had tried burning it down and it would not burn. I thought that that was a very good way to create subtle unease for the reader because she's trying to avoid the right. She's returning to a home that apparently this house doesn't burn. And yet she sort of feels safe there, even though she's uneasy about it. And once again, for me as the reader, I'm like, there's all kinds of different tension going on here. And I feel like we're, I'm getting a layer cake of tension almost. And I enjoyed it. What'd you, what did you think of the description of her home and then the introduction of her father? Because for me, the introduction of her father with the fact that he's in the wheelchair, um, but he's this really buff, strong man who has the upper body strength of like Hercules, three men. That, three men. I'm just saying Hercules for the for the sake of it. But I had not read the prologue, so I did not know any of his history. And I'll just say, and maybe it's, how do I put this? Since I did not read the prologue, and since it plays so much into his character, I feel like this is now when I need to address it. I couldn't wait to see what where he was in this because he was he took he took a huge risk by not destroying her and instead taking her tail. And so at this point in time, I'm thinking, I can't, I can't imagine where this guy is. And then of course I find out his legs have been destroyed pretty much. And so I was very disappointed and unhappy about that. Cause I do not, I do not, I wanted him to be at this point. He was my favorite character before I found out his legs were gone. And so I didn't want to see him, disfigured i wanted to see him be a strong defender instead of someone who was so i was i was rather disappointed uh, and but he's still a strong man he's still taking care of her he's still concerned for her and he took the step of of making sure that she would be somewhat safe so i was interested in seeing the dynamic between them so i caught that caught up with that in this the beginning of this chapter particularly when she first sees him and now i see as an as a, a young adult or youngster, whatever you want to call her at 15, how she's going to react to him and how their interaction. So I was really excited about that. Did the fact that he was in a wheelchair now versus having full function in the prologue make you want to know why he was now in the wheelchair? Yeah, like, was I it kind a, it was it an like was it a hook for you to want to know more about what happened with him? Yeah, I kind of wanted like to know. I didn't want it to skip that far forward. I knew it was going to skip, but I didn't want it to just jump 15 years. I didn't want, I wanted to see some, some lead up to that. Maybe we will see it. Maybe there'll be a, well, uh, 
Maybe maybe the author was writing for the people who don't read prologues because since I didn't <laughs> read prologue since I didn't read the prologue on this later on when we find out that in the main chapters that he basically scarred her intentionally scarred her as a child to make it look like wolves had taken her tail so that she wouldn't be quote unquote tailless naturally it was there was going to be an explanation for it that was a shocker revelation for me when it came up but in this case after going back and reading the prologue i'm like okay if craig read the, read the prologue then i wonder if that undermined the revelation for her because when we get to that and i realize that we're jumping ahead i was there with her and what she was going through emotionally as she was finding out all of this stuff about herself that she didn't know. So I was totally along the ride. I was feeling what she was feeling. And that was because I didn't know. I hadn't read the prologue. Gotcha. Everything was about the right. The binding is about the right. Her fear is about the right. There's foreboding when um, there's mention that the raven has come. And she asks her father, so what if, uh, so I can't bind, so what? It must have happened before. Surely I'm not the only one. I can't possibly be the only one in the entire world in all 11 kingdoms. She was broken, unable to bind the might, cheated out of something that everyone else had mightless and tailless i found that to be very powerful um the fact that she acknowledges what she uh, she isn't and yet there was an element of i don't know how to put it despair there's an element of despair because she's different from nearly everyone else something she will never be able to claim because she doesn't have the tail, as apparently everyone else does. I I thought that I thought that this chapter was a little bit quieter of an ending. The cliffhanger that was in it was a little bit quieter. I left it with still a little bit confused about the binding. I sort of get the impression that might, quote unquote, is their name for their magic system. But I still don't quite understand how the binding of might is a right. And I'm not in I'm certainly not intentionally trying to make that sound like it rhymes. But <laughs> I I don't un, I I'm invested, but I'm confused. And so I'm trying to find clarity and I'm not quite finding that clarity well, there's at so least yet. There's so much complication in this. Is he a criminal? Apparently, he's he's a huckster selling selling drugs and selling things herbs. for people to smoke and herbs that may or may. In fact, at one point, she's talking about the fact that he sells he sells herbs to cure people that may or may not cure them, and doesn't really care. So we have a criminal who's. But who's, is he a criminal because he was always a criminal, or is he a criminal because he's been on the run to protect her, and it's the only thing that he could do to make enough coin. Well, see, I thought he was a criminal because he lost his legs and couldn't do decent work. 
That's why I thought he was a criminal. But also, to, he, he's also protecting her. Hence, he's ready to run. And in this chapter, he's always already prepared to get the wagon ready and head out of head out of town. So, I mean, he's doing it all for her. I'm sure. It's going to be interesting if we ever find out if he lost his legs because of something with her. But I found that to be a little a little interesting. I mean, I, I like, like Ken, he was probably my favorite character. In fact, he's probably still my favorite character. I want to see what he's going to do. And, you know, I don't have a lot of interest in her at this point. I, I just, I waiting to see what he does and then she's going to have to react to it. And I'm, I'm a little concerned that uh, she may be the only person in the universe that's tailless. And why is she called Odin's child? I found this chapter in the first, first, part of the book here very confusing chapter three switches from herka's perspective to rhymes and one of the first things that we find out about rhymes perspective is that he has some eyes for herka he thinks herka hasn't lost any of her metal in the last three years he had to give her that she still acted before thinking which i think is sort of the description that like the sense that I got from the first two chapters, this is a character who will definitely plunge in and help somebody without thinking of the consequences. Maybe someone who might plunge into a rushing river and they don't know how to swim because they're trying to help someone. I, I get that from his perspective. What did you think about the shift in perspective on, in, as we begin chapter three? You know, I like I like the fact that he's helping Vettel as he walks along. He's not really paying attention, but he is helping Vettel. He's he's thinking about his relationship with her, which may or may not lead to something in the future. And he's enjoy he's truly enjoying the day. And I think I like that very much. I like the fact that it he's a, a more lighthearted character. He's we haven't seen him be serious yet about anything particular particular and again he's helping Vettel as if he were a farm cat <laughs> I like that line what I loved about this chapter is world building dumps it can be a lot of information for the reader to absorb what I found interesting about chapter three from Rhyme's perspective is there was a world building dump but there was more clarity in the world building dump than there was in my understanding of binding the might in the first two chapters. Um, we get the explanation of the ravenry uh, and the fact that these ravens are dark messengers used for sending letters. They're the council's wings, sacred bearers of news and of orders concerning matters of life and death. He heard them whis the ravens whispering about as he approached, and he knew he was being watched and weighed. He was recognized as the son of the seer, and they settled down. The silence after they settled down, though, smacked of anticipation of hunger, of a beggar's greed. Dark shadows shifted impatiently between the branches. So... In those little descriptions, and of course, that's just the stuff that I pulled out of it, all of a sudden, we've got a mythology for this, and I, I guess I missed one very important part. It, he notes that much of his country, unrivaled power, 
comes from this network of ravens. So we we have a sense of darkness. We have a sense of um, whispers in the night or whispers of death, matters of life and death, and we have unrivaled power because of it. What did you think of the raven element um, as it was introduced in chapter three? Well, I still want to know just how smart, how intelligent the ravens are. Ramoja is the the ravener, and she is she's basically in charge of the ravens. And with with there being so much power in the ravens, how important her job is. And and Brime realizes that and gives her a great deal of credit for keeping track of that and how intelligent the ravens seem to be, and how they were watching him, watching her, and keep a, keeping track of the relationship. Well, and we also learn that she followed his grandmother when his grandmother came out to this region um, from the capital. He and so she has a long-standing relationship with the grandmother. He she had was a friend of his deceased mother, and I get the sense that she's almost a mentor or possibly a. This is the wrong context, but you know how in a lot of fiction there is the the nanny who's more like a mother than your actual mother? I got the sense that she sort of filled that role for him here. But yet there were things that he couldn't tell her and were keeping from her because he'd made a choice. And we learned that instead of becoming a seer and following in his grandmother's footsteps and taking her seat— he has decided to train to be a protector. Now, we don't fully find out what a protector does or how they're involved, but it's definitely not as elevated as what his grandmother is. So he's setting his own course as a character that diverges from what's expected of him by society, his grandmother, and even Ramona, who is the thus far the person who seems to be the most mother-like figure in his life. I think of her more as a teacher than a mentor, someone that actually has taught him much. And he, he gives a hint at some point that he's going to be more than just a protector. He's taking a very, very important role, probably as important as his grandmother's. Uh, He he gave up being on, I believe it's, is it the council gave up being on, on the council in order to take this other role. But he does hint at the fact that it, it's going to be more important and no one can know about it. So he's kind of has to keep that a big secret. So that was kind of intriguing, just exactly and, what that role would be. And I thought that it was powerful the way it was described. What you alluded to was, from his perspective, it was to his grandfather, he was a traitor. Only the council knew the true path he'd chosen. He couldn't share it with anyone else. If your that- grandmother, who is a powerful woman, is some and on the council, would consider you a traitor, but only the council knows the tr- his true path, then I'm like, I don't quite understand the political dynamics, or maybe uh, like of how that all plays out, or maybe it's because the grandmother has been out away from the capital, and so the council that's at the capital is the one that knows, and his grandmother doesn't. There, but I'm intrigued. I'm definitely intrigued. What's what I thought it was interesting was the was that even though this chapter was all about rhyme, was all about the fact that he's on his own destiny, we 
come to the end of it and his his thoughts have refocused on Herka. That girl was like Nectar, the only chi- child in Elvroa who never yielded to him or used his title. She was like a Vettel in a way always exactly herself. So even <laughs> though he's got all this other stuff going on, he's got the fact that he's on a, he has some sort of secret destiny, his grandmother will consider him a traitor, he's disappointing Ramoa, it still comes back to Herka. What did you think of how this chapter ended? Well, I wonder what telling him to go to Slokna is. <laughs> that I, one. I think I believe the the context that I gathered from that is that's a name for hell. Yeah, that's exactly what I I got. But I've never heard that in regards to the, uh, the <laughs> that part of the world. But yes, and <laughs> Rhyme had had seen people killed for a lot less. So yes. It's 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 an interesting dynamic between the two, kind of a, a dichotomy. He thinks she's like nectar. He thinks she thinks he ought to go to hell. <laughs> so um, I find that I find that funny. I find it uh, exciting and something to look forward to. I'm going to bring this up because I forgot to mention it. I thought that there was also a potentially a lot of foreshadowing. I thought that. Um, Siri could be laying the groundwork because it's pointed out that his grandmother has been in this area because of its proximity to Ravenhov, which is an old chiefdom and the and a thorn in the council's side. It's the only country that is not under the influence of the council. But in part, the reason why that is the case is because between Yim and Ravenhov is this. Um, these mountains called blind bowl and it's an they're impenetrable and so in my mind i'm like okay we have mentioned the fact that he's not like his grandmother he's on a secret quest that only the council knows about and all of a sudden we have this dangerous land that he is currently in very close proximity to and he has a secret destiny how much you want to bet we're going to end up in the impenetrable mountains headed to, toward Ravenhov sometime, not necessarily in the first five chapters, but sometimes in the first arc. That For me, I felt like that was major for laying the grant groundwork for future storyline with major foreshadowing. Did you feel the same or was that something that didn't stick out to you? you well, you know, Luke, it does say he was no longer a pawn in the council's game. He fa- had found his place. He was already dead. That could very well mean that he's going to Ravenhof. It would be possible that if Herka's father is going to, is taking her someplace safer, he may be heading, heading there as well. And since she, he and Herka are already linked, that could be, be very well what it means. Chapter four picks up with from Herka's perspective again, but she also is much like Rhyme is thinking of her. She is thinking of him, but her perception of him is still clouded by what she perceives for him as um, the grandson of a very powerful woman, the council, the augurs, the seer, all of that is still what is, masking his true personality or true destiny to her. She's only seeing him through that lens. And I thought it was interesting that we end with him thinking of her 
and we pick up with her thinking of him. <laughs> I'm really liking how the the dynamic that Siri is creating for these two characters. But now is when we get into the backstory that for me, because I didn't read the prologue, really hit home. Her father reveals that I didn't have you, I found you. We then got backstory involving the stone circles in the 12 kingdoms and how on a wintry night, Someone who worked for the Sears came out, called upon him to go help um, search the stone circles, and because something could be coming through them, the guy who who enlisted her father was massively drunk and barely made uh, could barely walk to that point or through as they were searching, and so the father did most of the searching and found her. And then basically, because the the other guy was passed out, he carried the baby in the wagon in his lap, and the guy was passed out in the back. But we <laughs> got we got some backstory. We got some teasing as what are these stone circles, and we're following Herka's emotional journey as the impact of these revelations are beginning to hit her. What did you think of how he, as a father figure, revealed this to his daughter? I kind of expected her reaction. I I don't know if he realizes just how much of an effect it's going to be on her when he tells her he's not really her father, unless he's trying to shock her into into making the decision that she's going to leave and get away from the binding, because that is where all her danger lies, is that darn binding. If they find out she can't can't do it, or the right, I should say, she can't do the binding, or she's not like the rest of them. She's an Odin's child, which I think is very dangerous for her. He may just be trying to shock her by doing that. But it it was kind of disturbing whenever a father reveals, well, I'm not really your father. You know, I just you're just a foundling. I found you and saved you by taking your tail, as I think she finds out in this chapter. Right. So that's the thing. Like the way he tells her, you can tell he's not used to a lot of nuance in life because I couldn't raise a tailless girl. I left the scar. I carved bite marks into your back. It certainly wasn't easy. It had to look real and you screamed. I had to hold my hand over your mouth or you would have woken half the town. He follows that up as more as as he's explaining more to her by saying, you entered the world tailless in the stone circles near Ulfheim and you can't bind. I don't know where you're from or what you are, but I don't care. We're leaving. If you're one of the tailless, one of Odin's kin, dot, dot, dot. And then we switch to her perspective and her. She absorbs Odin's kin as the children of Odin, Mensker, bringers of the rot. So now, not only do we have a society in which we have humanoids with tails, people without tails are considered to be the bringers of the rot. What did you think of how this chapter ends before I ask you about a metaphor that uh, that I was wondering about? Well, I'm, I again, confused. There's so many concepts in here that that I wasn't prepared for. Bringers of the Rot, Minsker. I, I wanted to know more. I wanted more exposition. I wanted to understand this better. But I'm kind of stuck. 
I mean, I, I like the idea that, that uh, they're going to have to leave and she's going to have to go with him. I don't like the idea. I don't know what bringers of the rot are. And <laughs> I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated in this chapter probably more than the others because I, I want to know more and I can't, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. So for me, how do I put this? There was clarity in the revelations of her origin, but there was confusion by the additional layers that we brought on, which brings me to my question about the metaphor. Uh, What I was wondering is if Bringers of the Rot was a parallel or an analogy, I guess, maybe not a metaphor, but analogy to a lot of times in high fantasy, you will have a situation in which humans without magic are growing in population. And as that population grows, the magical races decline. And so when I was thinking about the circles, when I was thinking about the rot, it made me wonder if Odin's children are humans without magic, and by them making it into the realm of Yim through the portals, they would basically bring about the decline of magic. And so that is why they're called the rot, because the magic begins to fade. That was the only thing that I could think in my mind to explain for a parallel to explain the rot. I don't know if I'm on the right track, but I'm, I know that you've read a lot of fantasy and you know that that is a trope that happens where humans, human expansion cuts in on whatever the magical races are. And I, my question was, are these circles, how these magical races cut off humans from accessing them? And she has now made it through. Well, interestingly enough, and much quite often in the Norwegian tradition or Scandinavian, they kill babies that are dis- disfigured or come in, come into the world wrong. So that's where you missed it in the in the beginning of the the uh, the book. There apparently there's almost no one. There's almost no one that doesn't have a tail. If if and all of them have had accidents or something that hides their tail. So everyone seems to have a tail. So in this case, there's not a problem with several of them. There's just her. Right. Which is why her coming through the portal as a child, I was wondering if it was a scenario in which some human mother on the other side of the portal put her in the portal and somehow sent her through. Uh, The other thing that I was thinking is the book is called Odin's Child. Yes. In Greek mythology, Norse mythology, Roman mythology, how often do we have a situation where a god sleeps with a human and you have a demigod? All the time. Right. That's that's what Hercules or Heracles is. Right. And so that was my other thought. Like, what if it's a situation where, if it's not the human expansion, what if this is a situation in which it's a demigod who was moved from the humanoid plane to this magical realm? through the portal. And the reason why that could work is because she's a demigod. Or a god realm to this human uh, m- magical area. So it could be that she she came from the, a god realm and to uh, Menfella. So that is also possible. Or it could be bringers of the rot could actually be a literal rot. Somebody who doesn't have a tail is going to cause a rot it's... to the culture, rot to the land, 
or just a literal rot. All of the things, things, so will, be, things will be rotting of, away. I thought about that, but what I struggled with on this was a lot of times when you see that in fiction, if there is a rot or if there's a pestilence or something like that that is human-made, you see some sort of description of that in the area around where the story starts. And yes. I did not get any indication of the rot being a physical rot in this area. If she's been living here for how many years, a long enough to have been for Rhyme to have been gone three years, you would think that the rot would actually show up and would be a mention or would be plaguing the village. So I don't know that the rot is actually a physical manifestation. I did not take that away from it when I was trying to understand this. Well, see, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that it nothing happens. She's she's still under age, so nothing happens until the right. Then, when she start, when she actually becomes of age, then is when the real concern is. At this point, she's still under age, doesn't have any power of her own. No one knows she's dangerous. She hasn't had a chance to to mature. Usually, the rot comes or the power comes after they mature. And so she's not at that point yet. And that may be just exactly what the right is all about is to finding those people who can't bind and who are blind. I still don't know what blind means, but they're blind somehow. So that's what, that's what I took from this, that, that it wasn't till the right that anything bad could possibly happen. But after the right, look out. And maybe this is the brilliance of the author because she has us thinking about so many different scenarios as a reader. I actually sort of think it's the other side of that coin. I didn't mention this earlier because I have tons of notes on this. The council specifically sent out all those people to check all of the stone circles in the kingdoms because the stone whisperer had felt something change in the flow of might. And had gone on about the old stone doors being open again, about something passing through. In my mind, I felt like, okay, this is a girl who is innately powerful and or magical, but not necessarily in the way that this society is used to seeing. She may not manifest it until she reaches a certain age, but she is imbued with it. And that's what triggered the Stone Whisper, which, by the way, I thought was a super creepy name. And I'm very jealous that she came up with it because it's a really great title. <laughs> uh, I almost have to chalk this up, some of this up to the author is very good at making me want to know more because I can't, for the life of me, figure out everything that's going on. And I don't mind a lot going on, but I'm not to the point where it's making me put down the book. It's still <laughs> making me turn the page. Speaking of turning the page, let's talk about <laughs> chapter five. Okay. Because in chapter five, we get to the third of three people listed on the cover flap. Now, it's also a very short and to the point chapter. <laughs> Before we get to that, I'm going to read this description from the cover flap. Erd is ty tyrannical, conniving, and cruel, and he has his sights set on the council. Erd would make a pact with the devil himself if it would get him the power he craves, but nobody knows what the devil might demand in return. So that's on the cover flap. That is the tease for this character. And this chapter, 
starts off with his dad being dead, cut into pieces, eaten by ravens, and as he's watching his father eaten by ravens, as the, him and the rest of the council watches, so this is a ceremony of some sort, he flashes back to his father telling him that he is not uh, no more fit to be a counselor than the whores by the river, that he will be the first break in their family's 700-year line of counselors. That's if, interesting. <laughs> if you are not, like, if your father hates you so much that you are no more fit to be a counselor than a river whore, that is a father-son dynamic that is massively fraught. And we find out that his father's contempt has spurred Erd, don't, once again, not intentionally trying to rhyme these things, no. has spurred Erd toward <laughs> darkness so that he can open the stone by himself. Now, I'm not sure what that stone is, we also learn that he wears a collar around his throat because he's hiding something on his throat. Once again, very brief chapter, very to the point. We also get his manipulations. What did you think of this introduction of obviously the villain? <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, he is introduced. There's no doubt about that. He is a bad dude. I mean, this is the only thing this is short is of as Maleficent. I mean, this guy has an introduction. Yes, he does. And he's already bribed one person. He bribes and, two of them. In well, my, yeah, I know. I was going to say he, bri he bribed one person and he manipulated another to believing she was going to get whatever she wants. This this chapter is three pages and three lines on a fourth page. So if you took out the emblem above the chapter title, this would be a three-page chapter. Yes. He does more in three pages. Once again, this author is very clever at how they craft things because in three pages she has made me go oh shit oh crap this is bad and i need rhyme and herka to be safe and based on the cover flap their destinies are inexplicably bound together i'm <laughs> like crap well i wish the rest of the book had been written this quickly and succinctly or I didn't I didn't have to didn't have to try and figure every little term out and every little every little uh, nuance. I, w I wish the rest of the book had been written like this because I thoroughly enjoyed this chapter. This is the first chapter I thoroughly got a kick out of. And we know who he is. We know why he got that name. His father is named Spurn. Did you see that? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that <laughs> this is like um, something out of Dickens, you know. The father's named Spurn, son is named Erd. <laughs> so yeah, I like this chapter. I thought I thought it was short, succinct, told me exactly who he was, and now I can hate him without even thinking about it because because he's such a bad guy. So I wanted the rest of the book to be kind of like this. So anyway, yeah, this was a good chapter, a good a good maneuvering to make me want to find out what the hell Erd is going to do next. What in the Slokna Erd is going to do next. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So as we begin to wrap this up, is there anything that stood out from you that we that we haven't touched on as part of the discussion about one of these five chapters? Father, have you ever heard of anyone anywhere who's seen one? A tailless. We've traveled all, all across all of Fallguard and never, never met anyone else tailless who can't bind. I love that. I love that part of the book. That they've never met anyone else tailless. I think that's very powerful. 
I still don't understand what the blind is after five chapters. Me either. But the way I understand binding to be, and maybe I'm wrong on this, I understand binding to be whatever magic weaving is of the might. Might is magic. Binding is spell weaving. That's that's what I'm interpreting for now. I have no clue if I'm right, but that's where I feel like I'm going. This begs the question, Craig, would you read beyond the first five chapters? I probably would not, except knowing that it is an international bestseller, so it's got some depth. And, and there's three books. It's there a are three books. There are three books, and by the end of those three books— I would hope that I would know what the might was, what binding is, what embling is, and everything else that, that's confusing in this first. I'm not real fond of the of using all those proper nouns that kind of make you think, what in the hell is that now? So, But as far as reading on, I think I probably will. At least give it a, a few more chapters to find out what's going on. But if if someone had handed me this book, not you or someone I didn't know says, try this book, read the first five chapters and see what you think. I probably wouldn't have read on. But be, but because you recommended it, more or less, uh, for us to take a look at, I probably am going to read on and see see if there's anything that catches me. I still so, don't have a favorite character, and I don't read books where I don't already have a favorite character. So I guess this begs a question, which I never thought I'd be asking on this podcast, because or asking about, do you think it's possible that some of our confusion comes from the translation? Because some things, some concepts and things that might be very simple in one language need more descriptions or titles in another. I think that is exactly right. I, I can honestly say this is the first book that I've ever read that I know for a fact has been translated. And so I don't know how many books you've read that have been translated in the past. It's entirely possible you've read many because you, you've read vast amounts, libraries worth of books. True. But this, for me, of all the when I think back of all the books that I've read, short of the Bible as a child, which was technically translated, this is the first fictional <laughs> book that I've read that's been translated. <laughs> Do you think it's possible that some of our confusion comes from just the tra- the fact that it was translated? Yes, I think that's a I think that's a fact. I honest to God think that's a fact. And for example, the name rhyme. The name rhyme means to me what it says in the dictionary. In a rapid freezing of water vapor on an ar- something already frozen. So that stuck me. Same with embling and why binding? Does it mean the same thing as a wood in English? And yeah, a lot of that is exactly how I feel. And the names like Aljup, that doesn't even sound like a name. It doesn't sound like anything. So and, so, and this this is where, not to go too in depth into our writing process, but I feel like this is where you and I have had discussions about use of words for terms and titles in which I have looked up the word and I'm like, it means this in... Norwegian or Swedish. Yep. And I'm like, let's use it. And you're like, I don't like that word because it doesn't sound right in our language. And so (laughs) that's why I was sort of wondering. I'm like, okay, some of this may actually just sort of be a reflection of the conversations that you and I have had about titles of our own characters in our story as we're doing it. And usually I'm pretty good with world building. 
but this is the first book in a while, and I don't know if it's because of translation or if it's just because I don't get it. The world building on this was too complicated for me to fully read smoothly. There was a lot of pausing between the bind and the blind. Like, uh, I got so confused by the blind and then the bind. Yes, exactly. I, I figured out that might was magic, but I'm still not sure I understand the rest of it. And so there was just, there was too much weight in the world building in these first chapters for me to understand it fully. I want to know, you've got ravens, you've got crows, you've got ravenries, you've got ravener, and you've got ravenhoff. I want to see a link already to why raven is used so often. I mean, I understand the concept of raven. Well, but technically, read... technically, the title of this series is called The Raven Rings. Understand. The trilogy is called The Raven Rings. I totally respect what you're saying because I get it. There needs to be more explanation about the ravens and connecting the ravens to the rings. Yes. But other than the fact that they didn't connect the ravens to the rings in the first five chapters, I was okay <laughs> with how they, I was okay with the ravens, the ravener and ravenov because it was all done in that one chapter from Rhyme's perspective. And it was all about his grandmother and the threat from Ravenoff. Or I'm mispronouncing it because I'm not looking at the word at this exact moment. So I apologize to the listeners. But because it was all contained within Rhyme's story about his new path, the Ravens was the easiest part of the mythology for sure. me to grasp. But the might, the bind, the blind, whether or not somebody can be bound or blinded, I, like <laughs> my eyes just started glazing. This is the first time in a long time that I've been overwhelmed by world building, and that doesn't normally happen very often. No, it does not. I know you are very good with dealing with world building, and this this is it's confusing well, and it's, it's 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 like the book that spawned that in, helped to inspire is a cornerstone for the inspiration for this podcast. Uh, Wicked as you wish is a book that takes every conceivable fairy tale turns it on its tail um, and <laughs> <laughs> and basically creates an alternate earth mythology that is explained in the first chapter like uh, the basic premise for the entire mythology and the the war is explained in the first chapter and then built on and then it, by by the time you get to chapter 5 you understand it all yes. and let me tell you it is no small feat for someone to explain the Snow Queen, the Cheshire, the Red Hood, Rapunzel. I mean, you go down the list of the characters that you have mentioned, Wonderland, then you have the you have all these different elements from fantasy tropes from all over the world, and they're all combined, and yet it all makes sense and you're all reading it. Yes. There was so much going on in Wicked As You Wish that for a moment I was like, how is she going to pull this all together? But so far, it all makes sense. I have no clue where this is going, but it all makes sense, and I'm following along. That was Wicked As You Wish. In this one, I'm like, I am so confused, and I'm almost lost. Well, it's funny. I've read many books translated from the Russian, several books, including science fiction and fantasy, translated from the Polish, 
And I, I'm more confused by this one than I am any of those. And and this co- this culture is closer to ours than than either of those. So yeah, I'm I want it to be good. I wanted it to be wow. I'm gonna want to read more of this. But yes, it's it's absolute fact. It's got me just on tenterhooks to see if they can within the next half a book if I if I can understand all these concepts and learn exactly what this is all about. So. So I, too, will continue. I will read beyond the first five chapters. But in part, one of the reasons why I'm reading beyond the first five chapters is because I want to see if you and I can have a discussion about some of the concepts in here and finally figure them out later on, because I've enjoyed (laughs) our discussion about whether or not we understand the concepts in the first five chapters so much. Very good. Sounds fun. Craig, as always, um, it is a pleasure speaking with you. You you know there is nothing that I enjoy more than chatting about world building, story structure, and all of that with you. So thank you for joining me on this episode of The First Five Chapters. (laughs) I enjoyed it thoroughly. So thank you as well, Luke. (laughs) See you again soon. Enjoyed this episode or the show? Support us by writing a review on iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on social media by checking out the profiles linked in every episode. And finally, join the First Five Chapters Facebook group to share your passion for books, writing, and to make topic suggestions for future episodes. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, it's up to you whether or not to read beyond the first five chapters.